Welcome to Conversations, a tier fund podcast connecting global voices to local issues. My name is Chris Thompson, and I'm joined by my co-host, Gemma Brown. It's lovely to be here with you. Gemma, amazing. Uh, it's so exciting to uh, launch our first episode, yeah. and uh, it's a real pleasure. So as I said, my name is Chris Thompson. I'm from Waringstown. I belong to Waringstown Presbyterian Church. And interesting fact, I just bought a harmonica and I'm trying to learn it. And already I think I am Bruce Springsteen. Gemma, <laughs> tell us a little bit about you. Well, just to backtrack on the harmonica thing, I have heard you in several meetings and think you're great. So I'm looking forward to the harmonica and you making <laughs> an appearance. Stay tuned. Um, uh, yes, that was stay tuned. Haha. Um, yes, I've been here at Turfund for just over five years. I look after our media and comms and genuinely believe that my role is the best job in the world. Um, I'm married to Dan and we have a three-year-old and then a soon-to pop-out second little one. Fantastic. Conversations is a podcast series that connects global voices to local issues. In these episodes, we share the wisdom and ideas of voices from around the world and connect them with the things that matter to our church communities here in Northern Ireland. We believe that the local church plays a unique and vital role in establishing God's kingdom around the world. We love it in all its shapes and sizes and understand that Tierfan has a special role in equipping and encouraging the local church. We believe that the global church is a wonderful family with a vast wealth of wisdom and experience from those living faithful lives where God has placed them. When we only listen to voices like our own with experiences like our own, we lose out. Churches in Northern Ireland can learn a lot when we listen to our brothers and sisters from around the world. We believe that the COVID-19 pandemic has had a seismic impact on our nation and on our church. If we as Christians and as leaders can listen with courage and respond with wisdom, we will see a church revitalized in its hope and renewed in its calling. And we'll see our land transformed in the name and power of Jesus. In each episode, we will invite you to listen in as we speak with a voice from the global church, knowing that what we hear won't just encourage us, but can inform our practice and impact our mission here at home. Oh, and since we're in Northern Ireland, we'll not take ourselves too seriously and we'll be sure to bring a little bit of banter along the way. Tear Fund is a Christian charity that partners with churches in more than 50 of the world's poorest countries. We tackle poverty through sustainable development, responding to disasters and challenging injustice. We believe an end to extreme poverty is possible. Visit tearfund.org to find out more. So we're going to hear from a wonderful Tear Fund individual and our heart is that that would connect into the kind of thing that the local church and local communities face here in Northern Ireland. Gemma, tell us who we've got coming up. Yes, Prince David, who is not actually a prince but is Tier Fund Royalty and who heads up our work in India. So it is a great privilege to have Prince David on the podcast, on our first ever podcast, in fact. Uh, Prince, as far as I know, doesn't have any royal connections, um, but he's definitely tier fund royalty, having served as country director in India uh, for more than 25 years. Uh, so without going into loads of detail, I was still in primary school <laughs> when Prince first joined the tier fund team. 
Before we dive in also, it's important to say that because of sensitivities around our work in India, we will be taking care with the language that we use. And that's just in order to protect both our staff and our partners on the ground. So Prince, I've given you a little bit of an introduction, but tell us a little bit, maybe more about yourself. Um, Tell us a little bit about India today, where it is you live, maybe a little bit of what it was like to grow up in India, uh, just to help us understand where you are. Chris, thank you for the opportunity and thank you for the welcome as well. Um, I was born and brought up in New Delhi and the pin code was number one. And I'm still in the same city. All these years, um, I've lived pretty much here. Um, It's a fascinating place, which draws large number of people from all over the country and particularly from the surrounding states because it's a city of opportunities. It's the heart of the parliament and uh, politics in India and uh, very good for primary, secondary, and uh, tertiary education, very good for medical facilities. Growing up in Delhi, I remember using a push bike and you could count the number of public transport buses that would go. You could even count the number of cars that went on your fingertips. Now, if I went on a pushback, I'm sure to get crushed by one of them, uh, <laughs> one of the four-wheelers. Um, and it's a very crowded city as well. Prince, you know Northern Ireland well, and you know that we don't like to drive for more than about two hours unless we're going to stay for the weekend. <laughs> uh, I imagine in India, that's not true. Give us a sense of the scale of geography, of population, just to help us understand some of the numbers. So uh, officially, our numbers are 1.3 billion and growing. Um, And uh, anywhere to the nearest partner, it takes me an overnight journey by train. And if I drive to the nearest project, uh, we're talking about uh, at least 10 hours uh, on road. So um, our partners and our work is spread right from the east in the city of Mumbai, which is in the state of Maharashtra. We have uh, three partners over there. And then if we look at the eastern part of the country, when you fly across from from Mumbai to uh, the projects that we have in east, we're talking about a good three hours by flight. And Prince, obviously, as well as leading Tierfund's work, you're also involved in the leadership of your own local church. Can you tell us what that looks like? Yes, so I have been involved with my local church for the last uh, 12 years as one of the elders. And my responsibility is to bring God's word, uh, not every Sunday, but once a while, to lead uh, midweek Bible studies. And uh, for the last over a year, I have been facilitating a prayer movement in my church, which is a weekly group that gathers on a Sunday night to pray for members and uh, uh, particularly it started around the time when we started seeing COVID uh, affect our families and uh, the country and the world. Uh, So these are my three key roles in my congregation. That's great. Do you ever fit in time for sleeping or eating amongst your busy schedule? Uh, Yes, the Lord does (laughs) allow that. I, I plan. I plan things. I have learned to say no to many opportunities that come. And so I have to discipline myself. I'm accountable to a few people 
who do check on me and inquire, and I've made that accountability system quite clear that I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't take more than what I can handle. So, Prince, on to on the tier fund. Then, um, obviously, I'm quite new to to the tier fund family, and over the last few months, I've discovered that our work looks very different depending on the context. So, tier fund does everything from that sort of long term generational community change to that sort of emergency aid and keeping people alive in the very short term and then obviously also advocating and really pushing for justice and for change and everything in between that maybe in just two three four sentences can you give us a big picture summary of the kind of stuff tier fund is involved with in india Yes, um, Tier Fund is an incredibly wonderful organization because we work with local partners and we make ourselves relevant to the local context. And this is what I like about our work. We understand the context of the communities. We then try and address, and in some cases, it's just addressing uh, resilience building that is reducing the vulnerability of communities that live in either a multi-disaster prone area, which could be floods in one season and droughts in the other season. And what we also do is emergency relief, which is part of pretty much the flagship of Tier Fund globally. But thankfully, we have come to the point in India where a lot of the major disasters are responded uh, by the government and where it is way beyond uh, the levels that the local governments can respond, then of course help is sought in from outside. And in our endeavors to work with the local partners, we also envision and equip and help local church leaders to do the work of community mobilizing and community development. And this could look very different from one place uh, to another. In some places in the cities, it could be protection of children who are left behind by their parents who are very poor and both the father and mother have to go out to work and they, they don't have safe places. And in that cases, these leaders will organize something for the children, places where children can be left like a play school. And they're also provided with some sort of a nutritional support during the day. That's wonderful. One thing that we'd love to spend a little bit more time on in this episode is talking about the anti-trafficking work that you have spearheaded in India and um, working with partners to protect, as you say, vulnerable communities and um, from human trafficking. And I think actually the first time I met you was when you had come to Northern Ireland um, and you were you were sharing about this vital work. And I just remember it was years ago, but it was just so inspiring. Um, was there a moment that you remember thinking this is something that we need to address or a moment when you first saw that real need for yourself? So historically, Tier Fund has in India funded <clears throat> the rehabilitation of women or girls who were rescued in one of our projects. And in another project, the attempt was to help befriend these girls who were working in brothels and help them come out of it. My real conversion if I may use that term, came about when in 2013, in the month of February, I visited one of our communities in the poorest part of the country in the state called Bihar. And in a district where this particular community had no land of their own, 
they were affected by floods for three months in the year. And for about a couple of months in the year, they were affected by droughts. And they are known as Musahars, a community that is called the rat catching and rat eating community. And we had worked there for six years in this area on a flood mitigation program so that community resilience could be built and people could save themselves. And when we thought we've done a brilliant job, it's time for us to exit from here. And the exit strategy was placed in, in and, then, and, and that's when we went to see a community to see, wow, let's see the impact. And as we were talking to people, I noticed there was an acute absence of children. Now in India, if you go to a village and you don't see 60 children, maybe a hundred children around you, you wonder where the, what's happened. So out of curiosity, I asked, where are the children? And somebody said, they're not here. I thought maybe they've gone to school. And then I asked again. That evening, I spoke to at least 24 parents. And everyone confessed that one to three children in their families. I mean, some had lost three children to traffickers. Wow. And none of them knew that this is trafficking. The intensity of poverty had driven them to let their children go with somebody who came to promise that their children will at least find food, a job, and will be able to live a better life. No parent, I believe, sells their child. But the parents were so desperate that they wanted their kids to survive and not die in front of their eyes. And that night, I remember, we just cried to the Lord. We said, Lord, this is distress. What have we been doing? How is it that for six years we've been working here and we've had no clue that this was happening right in front of us? And uh, that was the beginning of our anti-human trafficking campaign. Uh, even in Tierfund, I remember in 2015 and 16, we did the No Child Taken campaign. And the biggest support we got was from Northern Ireland. Um, so my association in that case is also very, very strongly linked with your churches. So one good news, one good news, the same community where every family had seen one to three children trafficked, we took a, a promise with the whole community that we will bring trafficking to zero. Within 18 months, we achieved that target. Within 18 months. And every now and then I check up, I call them up, I find them. And they said, just to report back, no child has been taken. Mm. Nobody has been trafficked. Very simple methods, but the community was able to do it. That's just incredible. And I love that idea of empowering the local community and they, they've taken ownership of it and are seeing the results for themselves, which just must be just the best thing for them. Did you ever experience any, um, any opposition, I suppose, when you were starting to engage in what is just such a difficult area? So much of the opposition in trafficking is at destinations because that's where a major financial transaction has happened. And whoever has put their money at stake are not going to leave it. They are connected with everybody everywhere else where there is power, right? But in source areas, which is where we can do something significant because a community suddenly realizes it's a community that was uh, sitting there, not recognizing what was happening. They were desperate. But even a desperate parent will not allow their child to go away if they know what's going to happen to their child. 
But thankfully, over time, God has given us favor with and our colleagues, favor with the community as well as the community leaders who recognize that we are there for their well-being and not to cause any destruction. You know, when I started coming to uh, Northern Ireland, I asked for one thing. I said, please pray. Trafficking is very dark. It's something that if you don't look for it, you won't find it. So I said, could you start praying so that we will have a breakthrough? Money, yes, is important. But can you just raise an army, a sea of people who will pray? And believe me, why did we achieve zero trafficking within 18 months? It was not because we invested money. It is because we invested in prayer. Mm. And so if we continue to do that, I believe, I believe, and I've seen evidence of it, you know, the heart of the most notorious red light district in one of our cities has seen lane after lane after lane being vacated, which used to be brothels have now become places where there is, you know, regular other business and other businesses are happening. Wonderful. Wow. I was going to ask about, about measures of success, Prince, and you've mentioned some success stories in terms of no child being taken year after year in that community. Is that the same across the board? Are there other ways that you can measure success or other places that are more challenging for various reasons you haven't been able to see that level of success? So I always say that trafficking is a symptom of a much deeper problem. And that deeper problem is uh, communities are excluded, disempowered, do not have access to economic opportunities and to develop their resource base. So in our anti-trafficking work, on the prevention side, we focused on the longer term economic empowerment. So one measure of success was, has the household income gone up? So I'll give you an example. In the olden days, people used to have a cow, they would milk the cow and they would go and sell the milk or a vendor would come buy their milk at rock bottom prices and sell it at a good profit in the cities or towns because there was no transport, these people couldn't go. Now we started working in formation of cooperatives, we started working with farmers, farming, forming farmer cooperatives, so everybody's produce. Now, these farmers are now renting land from farmers who are not using some of their land because they've got so much agriculture, you know, the richer ones. Or they're working and receiving a wage and are able to invest their money and send their children to school. And we have seen that these communities have become resilient not only have they become resilient, they're also allowing other villages around them to replicate their model. When I say allow means they are participating and sharing their success stories. In fact, I was asking one of the leaders. So I said, you know, <clears throat> tell me, how is it that when we were working with just 10 communities, your success story is way beyond these 10 villages? He said, sir, there's one answer only. And that is, if my house is on fire, I will first of all try and save my family members, but I will also go and save my neighbor. And so they've got the good news 
of how you can prevent trafficking of your, not letting your children go out and how you can build your financial uh, capital and how you can start businesses. And they're thriving. You know, we use the term flourishing communities. We see them thriving and flourishing communities, children going to school uh, in good health. And in one of the same communities where I had my first, as I told you in 2013, the major uh, sort of breakthrough experience of understanding what poverty looks like. Now with COVID, we've seen, seen another um, a measure of success. With the local partner who are also running a hospital, we did a telemedicine, we're doing that currently as I'm speaking. And so far, we've had two waves. One was the most devastating one in the month of May, where in one single day, we had more than 450,000 new infections across the country. But in our community, in our villages, not a single person has died. And not a single person has fallen acutely ill. Anybody who had any symptoms were provided um, assistance right where they were. Through telemedicine, they were provided medication as well. And they were provided um, a place to stay so that they wouldn't go and infect others, you know, self-quarantine and all that. So, you know, whilst we came out to do something, we found that the same principles really work when the community is resilient and is able to understand um, what their needs are and how they can find resources within themselves. Obviously, you've just mentioned COVID and we probably couldn't uh, get away uh, through a conversation without it coming up. Um, I imagine over the over the decades of your work in India and even over your life, you've obviously come through a variety of challenges. You've mentioned natural disasters and COVID is the latest one of those. I just wondered, what have you learned as the leader through those various challenges? And I guess, has, has any of those learnings been helpful as you've entered into COVID and responded to that as a leader? Yes, COVID is one of the toughest challenges that I have um, seen and continue to see uh, in this season of uh, my life and work. I've seen major disasters like the tsunami, super cyclones where 30,000 people died in just one night and, and all that. But you know, those have happened and then they stopped happening. You know, but this is like relentless. It just goes on and on and on. And last year when we started, it, it just kind of seemed like, oh, where are we, Lord? So as a leader, I learned that it's important to have a very curious mind to understand. My curiosity caused me to read up. And then I discovered actually there, there could be some ways, there's some leeway here we can navigate. If I do self-quarantine, if I exercise uh, social distancing, if I wear mask and I keep sanitizing my hands, I, I, can, I can get out of the house. I can do certain things. So the mind barrier of fear was something I believe I was able to overcome quite early on. It gave me the ability to take risk. Mm -hmm. And as a leader, I realized that unless we take risks. We're not going to achieve anything. It's better to take a risk, maybe a calculated risk, and do something. Let it fail. Let it fail. 
but do something because if it fails, we can get up and learn from that. If I don't attempt, it's not going to happen. Nothing is going to happen. And I think my learning also comes from my brilliant colleagues that I work with in the office, as well as the partners. You know, some of them were putting their life, like if I had a choice, I would have dragged them out of the streets and brought them back to their homes. They risked their lives. They had COVID. They landed up in hospitals. And then they became well. And they continue to do what God has called them. So I became courageous from that learning. One of the things that I did right through that phase um, was just prayed. I said, Lord, these are circumstances I can't change, but I can change myself. And I think I have seen the biggest change in my life in the last 12, 14 months. I think our whole practices have changed. Dependence upon God, for instance. You know, dependence upon God for me now does not mean that everything will be all right. You know, it's not that it's a guarantee that I won't fall sick. But at least it again helps me build uh, the foundation of not living in fear. Brilliant. Thank you for that. I like the distinction between the adaptation that has been forced upon you and then the adaptation that that you have voluntarily brought on and one of those will finish, God willing, shortly. And yes. some of those learnings will continue. And that's, I think that's helpful for each of us as we think about our own context. Mm. Um, so just as we as we draw to a close in a few minutes, we're really aware that um, there are people who are involved in church leadership or who are leading Christian organizations across Northern Ireland and who are listening in. Um, so one question we had, we had for you was that um, sometimes I think in Northern Ireland, we separate spiritual needs from physical or practical or emotional needs in a way that probably Jesus didn't actually do himself. Um, so what advice would you have for us here? on how to develop, I suppose, a truly integrated, holistic view um, of what it means to love and serve people well? I think it's, again, it comes from my own learning and journey, from being a church pastor inside a campus where I could quite easily segregate myself from the, the others, that is the community, because of the boundary walls that I lived inside. And uh, I was heavily influenced by a very young lady who I had met and eventually married. And she was a doctor who went around with her medical kit, working for women who were battered. And here I was as a pastor and as a church leader, running, conducting Bible studies. But this young lady who I was so totally inspired and enamored by, I said, you know, Every day she comes and tells me the stories of how she was able to reach out to this person and that person. And here I wait for people to come to me. And there she goes out. I think that transformed my life. And I joined a tear fund. <laughs> so the lesson learned is that God has not kept us in campuses. God became father and Jesus created that relationship. So that's why we were able to address him as Abba. And that's the first time it happened. And then he created an alternate community of everybody who was odd, from women who were considered unclean, untouchables, from men who were also tax collectors, 
a fisherman, but he created an alternate community. And the, that's my encouragement to Christian leaders globally, is let's break out of our comfort zone. Let's break out from the places where we are comfortable to answer questions. Let's be open to answering questions and saying, look, I really don't know. I have no experience of living there. And uh, <clears throat> I've done a couple of things at different times. I've actually gone and um, stayed in a slum. I said, you know, just to experience life there and just cultural transformation, spiritual transformation. And I tell you, it makes leaders feel that they've actually walked, uh, you know, a distance that they've never walked or a mountain that they've never climbed. It brings in a breakthrough. That's wonderful. And I suppose this is linked then to bringing it right down to our context here in Northern Ireland. And you know as well, you've been, how many times have you visited us? Can you remember? Many years, most years. Gemma, I have been coming to Northern Ireland <clears throat> even before Chris was born since 1986. <laughs> That's amazing. Can you believe I have lost count? I probably have to pull up all my passports <laughs> to see. Yeah. So you've had many, many cups of tea that isn't as nice as Indian tea, but also probably some 15s and some tribex that have been quite nice, hopefully. And <laughs> um, so you, you know as well, you know our context well. I wonder what your words of advice would be for a church leader who um, maybe has identified a need for the first time during the pandemic and is seeking to find a way to address it in a, in a real um, sustainable long-term way. What would your advice be to someone who's starting out to, to address that need? I think the first thing is, if you've identified a need, believe that God has shown you that. You know, don't think that you've stumbled upon it because your life, my life, is a life that is led of the Lord. The Lord has opened your eyes to something. So be absolutely sure that God has shown you that. Number two, uh, my recommendation or advice is always talk to two or three people around you um, and, and share with them uh, and pray with them. And I think breakthroughs come. Uh, break, uh, first of all, we need a breakthrough. Yeah, we have identified how do I get out of this and how do I address this is, is, is start praying. And then the, the third thing is don't just pray in your room, but step out in those places with your feet on the ground and pray. And you will notice that people who are probably hostile or a need in a community um, that has kind of been distant or hostile you just suddenly find people are human beings. And when your feet come, you know, these are the feet of the gospel. This is the gospel of peace. And peace on this side of eternity is so true and possible in our context today. So when we put our feet on the ground and start praying, I've seen the shalom peace of God pretty much descending upon people. That is wonderful. Pray with your feet on the ground. That's a, that's a good manifesto. Um, Prince, uh, you have been a blessing to us, um, but we want to make sure that we're a blessing to you. You've given us lots of things that we can uphold you in prayer in. Is there just anything else you want to add specifically that we could pray for? So, yes. Um, the first thing that I'd really like you to pray for is the massive COVID response that we are currently um, undertaking in India. Um, across pretty much all our partners. Um, and 
you know, that, that we will be able to achieve that. We will be able to work with those communities that were struggling. We're already seeing the results, but I'd like you to, to continue to pray so that the Lord will bless those communities to come out of those situations. Uh, again, in the context uh, of work, I'd like you to remember my team. We are just a very small team of uh, four of us in the office and two people who operate, one as a volunteer and the other one um, pretty much like a consultant. We're a very small team uh, and some of them have smaller children. And, uh, you know, they're going out and coming in is affected uh, <clears throat> each time they have to visit a project. So pray that God will uh, keep them protected and keep us renewed in what God has for us, that no restrictions will prevent us from doing what God has called us. And to have that intellectual curiosity to say, Lord, what are you asking me to do in this? That's what I need my prayer, your prayers for. Wonderful. I'm just blown away by the, the size of your team and the size of the country. That is helpful context for us as we think about you um, and pray for you as well. Uh, Prince, it's been really, really great. I've been so encouraged to listen. I'm sure Gemma would say the same. Absolutely. It's just been incredible. And it just, it's so good to hear, I think, uh, just everything that comes across from you when you when you speak, but just how faith-filled you are is such an encouragement to us because, uh, you know, obviously we face things here, but you're facing such a tremendous mountain in so many ways. And yet you're listening to God and following him so closely. And um, so how can we not be encouraged by your example? Um, so thank you for that. Thank you. I can only say that it's mutual. I feel so encouraged when I have these opportunities of talking to you, have a bit of a, <clears throat> I don't have the Irish banter, but <laughs> I, 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 when I come frequently, I start getting it. But thank you so much for your encouragement, for your prayers. As I said, we can only see breakthroughs when we know that there are faithful people like you praying for us. So thank you. Wow, what a conversation. Chris, is it possible to kind of pick up on one takeaway? Ooh, I'm going to do two. Prince uh, finished, I think, with that call to pray with your feet on the ground. Yeah. Which is wonderful encouragement to, to not stop praying, mm. but to move the prayer meeting <laughs> uh, to the streets or to move the prayer meeting to your daily run or your your shop or, or whatever that is. Mm-hmm. I thought that was wonderful and he's so consistent with his understanding and belief that prayer is the thing that changes things. Yeah. Um, whether it's no child being taken or or COVID relief mm. or disaster relief, I think that prayerfulness, but the prayer grounded in action yeah. was probably what has struck me about that conversation. Yeah, he lives that, doesn't he? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I had a real moment of like feeling just very thankful to work for Tear Fund when he talked about trafficking being a symptom of a larger problem and just being so aware of actually how at Tear Fund we address the larger problem. We look at poverty and the root causes and then and then address things like trafficking, but further down the line, which I just think is... It's the epitome of sustainable development, isn't it? Um, and I think the other thing that I really just loved about what he said, he said that, that he kind of used the phrase um, curious mind a few times, which I think is just really refreshing that we're all we're all still learning. We're all learners. Even someone as seasoned and wise as he is, is still learning and still pushing himself to, to find out more. Um, I think that's really powerful. 
Mm. I feel like we could keep this going for a little bit longer. But yeah. I guess that's our hope for the podcast is that it stimulates a conversation or conversations uh, in whatever your context is. Uh, as Tear Fund in Northern Ireland, we're uh, deeply committed to serve and encourage and equip and challenge the local church to the vital calling uh, in the place that, it, that God has placed it and you. So thank you for tuning in. Gemma, tell us how people can get connected. Yeah, we would love to hear from you. What's been helpful from this episode? What have you learned? What are you learning at the minute in your context? What would be helpful for us to address in future episodes? So on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, we are at TierFundNI. And you can also just drop us an email at ni at tierfund.org. We genuinely would love to hear what you're thinking. And we'll see you again soon.